Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to I Was There Too. My name is Matt Gorley. This episode comes to you live from the Regent Theater at the Alamo Drafthouse screening of The Running Man with screenwriter Stephen D'Souza. He wrote The Running Man. He wrote Die Hard. He wrote Commando, 48 Hours, many, many others. He played a vital part in the crafting of all these movies, which normally this show, if you're a regular listener, is where I sit down with people who had smaller, significant roles in great scenes in cinema history. But Stephen had a million stories about the films that he worked on and in many ways embodied the energy of the films from that era in a way that I'll just let you experience yourself. He was a wonderful storyteller and actually put some cinema myths to rest as well as creating new ones. I don't know. It's a whole journey. I had a great time talking to him. One topic of conversation is how there is an entire universe of films connected under some of the elements of his screenwriting most notably the fictional location of Valverde, which is the country where Franco Nero's character from Die Hard 2 is from. It's referenced in Predator, in Commando, even going as far back as The Bionic Woman, and on into Denzel Washington's film Ricochet. If you Google the Valverde movie universe, you'll find out more about it. I love talking to Stephen and how all of these films were connected. My one regret is that I didn't cover one important topic, and that his his use of exploding hockey pucks from The Running Man to Die Hard. I didn't put that connection together until re-listening to this interview, but maybe another time. Thank you to Brett Berg and the Alamo Draft House for putting all of this together, and to Engineer Sam from Earwolf for coming out and recording it. I couldn't have done it without you. This is a long one and a long-winded one in the best way, so buckle up, everybody, and enjoy. The films, The Running Man and Die Hard. The years, 1987 and 88. The role, screenwriter. That screenwriter, Stephen D'Souza. Good evening. Thank you. 
Thanks for coming out. I, I always love doing shows here. My name is Brett, and I'm the creative director for Alamo Draft House, Los Angeles. And uh, coming to downtown in 2018. Uh, uh, I'll dispense with bullshit and bring out my uh, Q&A moderator for the evening. Everybody give it up for Matt Gorley. Oh. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi, Brett. Yo. So what is it about this movie? What isn't it about this movie? Like neoprene sweatsuit sport onesies? Muscles? In all the wrong places? Yafet Koto in uh, a spandex outfit. Hot. Yeah. Maria Conchita Alonso and Richard Dawson. Dickie Dawson. Are you guys ready for some Dickie Dawson tonight? We were talking about how he is absolutely perfect in this movie. Richard he's, I think he's physically incapable of not extending his pinkies at all times. Watch that in the film. I had to watch this film to kind of devise some questions yesterday, but watch how his pinkies are all... They're just fully erect the entire time. He perfected it on Family Feud when he would, like, survey Yes! Yes. Hand motion. Yeah, made all the better by his cuffs flipped up the other way, so it's just, like, yeah, it's art. So, um, Stephen D'Souza, who not only... Yes. Who not only wrote this film, but also wrote many things you have seen, such as 48 Hours, Commando, Die Hard, and directed Street Fighter with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Sorrel Julia. Uh, he's, he's a great satirical mind. This movie is full of the most cutting shit possible. But it was a lark. They didn't know. We all didn't know. Um, well, it literally... At least begins in the year 2017. The movie opens with this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it opens with this prison camp amazing sequence, but then it cuts to downtown Los Angeles, 2017. Yeah, there's a pyramid. There's a pyramid in downtown Los Angeles. It's in the movie, and hopefully, when you walk out tonight, you'll see it. Thanks for doing this. Man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. See you after. All right. Trump's uh, address to the Congress tonight, and are we going to run the movie now? <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. I didn't want to start with yeah. the unavoidable Can political... Can we change seats on yeah. South Park? Whoa. We'll see the year. Okay. You like to drive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's get to that. Let's get through the political aspects yeah, yeah. of this film, because, well, I mean, we literally have a reality television star in the Oval Office. There are not one, but two United States governors in, in the, this. Yeah. When you were making this, like, <laughs> solidly it's satirical It's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
When you were making this solidly satirical film, did you have any idea the amount with which entertainment and the state would merge in the future? Well, we, we had already had the movie network, of course, which was, you know, in the 70s and was extrapolating where things were going. And uh, we're sort of there now with Fox. Fox is like the network in the movie The Network. And when I came aboard this movie, um, uh, it, what's interesting is uh, it was written by Stephen King under a pseudonym because his agent at the time said, you're writing so many books, you're going to be overexposed. So he wrote this book under a pseudonym. Now, um, the, uh, in fact, when the studio bought the book, uh, they did, you know, the a fellow was an independent producer, was in an airport on a layover. He bought the book and said, this is a great movie, and he took an option on it, which was a modest payment with a big bump later down the line. And when he took it to the studio, Rob Cohen, who's now a well-known director, but this time as a studio executive, uh, he said, boy, you made a lousy deal. Why is the second payment so high? Then that's when I realized it was Stephen King. Now, in the book, uh, he shows a future dystopia where there's a worldwide depression that is so bad that the hero, who is sickly and tubercular, can't get work. Uh, he's got a sick child, and his wife is uh, turning tricks to get medicine. And the whole society's... So as soon as you cast Arnold, you go, well, you know, sick, sickler and tubercular is out. <laughs> and the worldwide depression, he can't get work, so he goes in the game show, but Arnold could get a job delivering pianos door to door, you know, so... <laughs> So you have to, I didn't say I have to destroy Stephen King's vision, but like you tailor, tailor the movie like a suit. Um, and the one, th and in the book, Stephen King's writing this up in Maine, like in 1981. I don't know where they don't have reception up there, he didn't watch television. <laughs> but the game show portion, the studio portion of the book is like five pages in, in, in the novel. Uh, and the host is a different guy from the producer. The producer's really the, 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 the prick. <laughs> um, but the game show in the book, it's like a game show in the 1950s. You ever see reruns of uh, You Bet Your Life with, with uh, Groucho Marx? That's yeah. what the game show's like. There's a guy at a microphone, and a girl comes out with a box around her neck, and the runners pick an envelope, and that gives you your head start. Ten minutes, 20 minutes. He, not sort of understanding how television works, Stephen King, a brilliant guy. Uh, and I'm in good company. He doesn't like The, the Shining either. You know, so, so I, I figure I'm in good company with Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so but by... Uh, in, in, the, in the book, the uh, runners, the show is on for a month, right? It's on every night for a month. The runners volunteer to win the money. And in order to get the money, every day you have to make a videotape, which you snail mail back to the network. <laughs> so every night you're looking at the videotapes from three days ago. This is before, like, the internet. Uh, and, and the hunters, they're called hunters in the game, they're anonymous. So you're walking down the street and the meter maid could kill you. But if I learned something making all these movies with Joel Silver, like you mentioned earlier, is he used to always say, the movies we make, Steve, they're hate movies. It's like a love story. It's a, it's a cute meet, you have a couple of dates, you fall in love, you break up, and you get married. But our movies are hate movies. It's a cute meet, you have a couple of fights, and one kills the other. <laughs> so that's how we sort of evolved in looking at television at the time. It's like wrestling. And the game shows in the 1980s are, were already Wheel of Fortune and the Bells and the Whistles, the $10,000 Pyramid... So we knew that the game show portion of the show had become entertaining. And so the evolution of the thing was, you have Arnold, that we've got to believe the audience is going to tune in and watch the game show. It can't be a guy with a microphone and, you know, and people handing an envelope. So it had to sort of evolve. Now, we got a lot of things wrong. You know, there's no flat screen TVs. Uh, there's a, people say that he's just like Trump, but Killian at least doesn't tweet. 
Uh, and the one thing that was delivered ever since all well, they have the cassettes, but at this time in the Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain, the uh, Samizat, the illegal circulation of literature, was done on mimeograph machines and dittos because the printing press was so police. So you see when she goes gets the data from the network that there is a, some kind of uh, uh, digital data, but so it wasn't that we didn't think they'd invent something new. It's, that's why she has uh, the illegal cassettes. So uh, there was an, an evolution, and of course, we said, all right, the game, it's got to be, you know, it's a two-hour movie, so we said it's a three-hour, you know, a game. So there's an evolution there. But what we have to remember, at this time, we already had a president who was an actor. At, right as we were shooting the movie, Reagan gave a speech where he said, and now, uh, one of, probably the speech to the, to, to the nation, and he said, right now, as we think, our brave men and women in costume are serving overseas. He actually said this. Like he crossed the streams uh, in, in, in his mind. Uh, so, you know, I did the most preposterous things I could think of. You know, get me the president's agent. The president has an agent. The Department of Justice Entertainment Division, you know. Uh, it, it, it's, it's scary, like, uh, how we sort of slipped into this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's not my fault. <laughs> no Blame one's blaming Steve. you. Now, personally, this movie's literally 30 years old. When's the last time you've seen it? Um... Well, I, every every week I'm like Miss Haversham. I watch all my no no oh. uh, no no. Are no, you uh, sitting in your rocking no, no, chair? No, no, no. I, 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 I probably haven't seen. I think probably like maybe four or five years ago on flipping channels. The one thing that drives me crazy about this movie is, as originally when we were doing the picture, at someone they, I think they say uh, he, he says we charge nominal lake for the software. He names a company. That's the real name of the company. We were doing the movie. A company came in and they said we have this new thing called synth espions. You don't have to risk the necks of the stuntmen. We can, you know, so they showed us, you know, a, a, a sequence of a, of, a, of a stuntman that was digital. But this is 10 years, 10, 12 years before uh, Tobey Maguire. And, and even if you remember the Spider-Man and Doc Octopus, there's like a digital yeah. valley of the stunts. Um, so we said, no, we're going to use the stuntman. But the one thing that was intriguing was when the stuntman wasn't moving, the face substitution was really good. And the executive producer of the movie was Rob Cohen, uh, who's done Triple X and uh, Fast and Furious and a lot of other movies. But he's famous for his like first week in Hollywood, like fresh out of college. Uh, he was a st- he got a job as a story analyst at Universal Studios, uh, and his first day at work, they say read the script and do the report. And some of you know what the reader report looks like. You have boxes, and you say, you know, characterization, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, re- relevance, uh, you know. And he gives it top top boxes. So a supervisor says, look, this is your first day. We don't like sprinkle fairy dust on everything. You're not going to last here if you don't have some judgment. Go back and do this again. And he says, I know how to read a script. You know, I, I know how to read. You know, I like took a literature course 101. You know, this, this is, I, all right, fine. You want to send that in? It's, I wash my hands, send it in. And it was the sting. So to, to this day, and I, I, I just had, you know, uh, had a conversation with Rob today, on his office wall he has the memo from his boss. I'm warning you. Don't send this in, right? And then, of course, the movie was history. So after they showed us this demonstration, I said, you know, it, it doesn't work with the stunt, but that face substitution, that works if the guy's not moving. Why don't we do what they did in The Sting? Because if you remember The Sting, at the end of the movie, um, they te- Robert Redford, uh, at the end of the movie, uh, it looks like Robert Redford has double-crossed Paul Newman, and they kill each other, right? Yeah. And the, audience, the real audience is shocked, and the people that they're like conning, like run out because they don't want to be arrested. And they, 
Right? And then they get up and they realize they shot blanks. And I said, we can do that in this movie digitally. So as written and as shot, the scene where Jesse Ventura kills them both was presented to you as if it were real. And we had a test screening. We go out towards Palm Springs. You want to go out, uh, get out of town where there's presumably real people, but also so a rival studio executive doesn't stumble into your screening. And, <laughs> and you I chose did, Palm Springs. And, and, and I did not see, I never saw an audience react to, to a movie go that, that, that shit crazy in that sequence until later on in the test of Die Hard because when Jesse Ventura like killed Maria Cucino Alonso broke her neck complete silence I mean I had to, I, had, I did the same thing in Die Hard 2 where they, we couldn't believe it we would crash the airplane and I remember typing that the little girl's teddy bear gets the seatbelt you know, like, oh, you know and the audience is stunned we killed, we killed all those people you know. the look on so, your face oh yeah yeah so so so, so it, it, I'm cackling when I type it. So anyway, that was the reaction. And, and, then, and, and then when he kills Maria, and then Arnold gets up and beats the living days out, uh, daylights out of Jesse Ventura, and there were old ladies, like the one in the movie, says, kill him, Arnold! It was like, it was like the hammer killing in, in, in Drive, right? And then at the last... And he beats the living hell out of Jesse Ventura, and then at the last minute, Jesse Ventura kills Arnold. And the audience was... Remember, this is like 1987. This is not, not seven. This is 1987. You don't kill a leading lady. Right? And we had like 700 people in the screening. And then after it goes, after it's over, uh, th- then you see uh, the scene where Mick Fleetwood, and, it, and I'll tell you the most on accurate, the most accurate prediction in the movie is what Mick Fleetwood looks like now. I was, he looks I had exactly, that exact note it was in on, here. Somebody, somebody tweeted that today. He looks exactly he like really that. He really does. Like that. So then he comes in and he says, look, he says, we just taped the last five minutes of the show, and then you, the audience, sees that they mind-fucked the fictional audience. Well, anyway, because it was a test screening, and, you know, test screenings put together at the last minute, in fact, as you may know, when you do a movie in the contract with the stars, you have the ADR, you have, they can come in for a few days to re-record lines. So we're getting ready for the test screening, and they say, well, you know, it's all last-minute scrambling, and... and uh, they said, well, you can't have Arnold come in and burn him up. So, and I said, I was famous. I'm famous from Silver Lake to Malibu for my Arnold impression. And I've, 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 I've punked so many studio executives as Arnold say, listen, I've seen my trailer. It's not as big as within my contract. You know, and this guy, D'Souza, he's giving me a hard time. And they, oh, well, you know, and then, you know, and then I stick my head, God damn it, you did that. D'Souza, it's you again. So I actually did, I actually looped some of his lines for the test screening uh, in the prison sequence, when they break out, some of that time, if you do it outside, that, that's me in there. Because like, the f- sound editors got confused. Just the test screenings or in the final cut? No, it, it, by accident, be, uh, and they got confused, and some of my dialogue is still in the movie. Like, my, my, <laughs> it, like uh, uh, he had to split, that's me. When, had, when Buzz Saga? He had to split. And also, there's a lot of lines here. After, after the, at the end of the movie, I'm adding jokes, you know? Yeah, you know, she's walking up. away. So anyway... Um, because it's a test screening, we had things that shot missing. Some of the scenes, like in the, in the slums, the screen is blank. You know, it's, it, it's a test screening. And the scene where they do the digital mat, it said shot missing, and some of that was black and white. So in 700 people, there were 12 people who said, I didn't understand how the audience in the movie was fooled. So some, you know, idiot network studio executive says, oh, we got a problem. These people don't understand it, but I can fix it. I'm good in post. Let's take those two scenes and reverse them. Uh-huh. I'm good in post. So th- that's what drives... So anyway, with the Blu-ray, you guys can like put those two scenes back in the right order. <laughs> but imagine the effect the audience it would have on the viewer. Yeah, so yeah. That's my biggest you know, problem with the movie. And I think the movie 
would have been a bigger hit. You want to, just like a Broadway show, you want them humming the last song in Hamilton when they come out of the theater, you want the last 10 minutes. So there's a little lull in the movie where you're, it's like watching the replay of the Super Bowl, you know? Yeah. Uh, so so uh, uh, that's my big, biggest misgiving about the movie. But it, it, it really holds up really well, and it, now it has all this, like, you know, added value and this strange subtext. And, like, we're leaving the theater, but we can't leave the movie. <laughs> I... I just want to say for the record, this is, this is word for word. How did Mick Fleetwood end up in this? His look is one of the many things this film got right. Yeah. That, was a, that was a question, or one of your, one of your suggested questions. How did he end up in this? Because he, before or after, wasn't known for... Oh, no, he was well known. I think somebody, somebody knew him or was friendly with him and said, you know, uh, can we do a cameo for him? And I said, yeah, he should be Mick Fleetwood. It's like his, his, his music has been censored in the future. <laughs> now, one of the things we got wrong is... You know, who thought Star Trek would come back, you know? So, like, you say, in the amazing future year 2017, who would... Star Trek, what's that, you know? Like, everybody's, everybody remembers is dead, you know? So, like, so that, 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 that one is... That, that joke, you know, falls flat. Um, so this was directed uh, by Paul Michael Glazer, but apparently went through at least four other Yeah, this is directors. crazy. Usually there's, like, you know, nine writers and, like, you know, and, and, and one director, but this is sort of the opposite. I survived the entire uh, experience a, a, as a screenwriter... Uh, the original uh, director was uh, George Cosmatos, who, just, who did, like, uh, Tombstone, Rambo, right? and a great guy, yeah. a friend of mine, he, he died a few years ago, in a really strange tra- tragedy, he, he had a brain tumor, and they operated on the brain tumor, and he went blind, as a result of the brain tumor. But if you ever read the book um, by uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, uh, by Oliver, Oliver Sacks, uh, his, his, he was married for 35 years, a, a wonderful woman, and she had died of cancer, and now he's, like dying of cancer, but it affected his brain and he had this thing like in the Oliver Sacks book where he did not know he was blind and he forgot his wife was dead. So you would visit him, he'd say, well, you know my wife. Honey, why don't you get Steve a beverage? You're looking well, Stephen. You know, so it's sort of, I guess if you have to go out, so way to go. Anyway, uh, when we did the movie, uh, uh, his family had suffered under the, under the Nazi occupation of Greece, uh, occupation of Greece, so we have this future dystopia, it's obviously a fascist state, and you see people suffering in the streets. But in the draft I did for George, there were roundups. There were concentration camps. He went, like, uh, way into that. Was it and, also set in a shopping mall? Uh, no, he, his vision was that the 1% that people lived in was a complete, like, biodome. Uh-huh. And he wanted to film all of the upscale scenes in the Edmonton Mall, which is the biggest shopping center in the world at that time. So we were going to shoot in Canada, and we scouted it. And then there was going to be... And then he broke out of the city. It was going to be a river raft chase. And I think he was just trying to get the movie back into the wilderness where he had done Rambo. He wanted the whole, he wanted the whole chasing part of the game to be in the wilderness. I guess he just wanted to get back on, on comfortable turf. Um, and then when the budget was done for that draft, it was uh, $27 million. And they said, no, 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 we got, we're doing this picture for like $18 million. And he said, he can't do it for $18 million. He left and he was right. The movie ended up costing $24 million. So uh, the next director came in uh, was... Uh, Alex Cox, who really wanted to do it, and wanted to great, you know, uh, Sid, Sid, Sid and Nancy. He really wanted to do it, but he was uh, it still could not get out of um, a picture, uh, Walker uh, in time to do our movie. So then there was a um, uh, a, a, Swiss, a, a Swiss director whose name is me now. He came and went in two weeks. I saw the back of his head in the elevator. And then we had a, a, an English director, Ferdinand Fairfax, uh, who had just made a, uh, uh, a a pretty good you know pirate movie. Uh, called Nathan Hayes, 
which he was convinced, and he was every day with him, he was complaining, fucking Paramount, fuck me, man. He was convinced that the international uh, uh, arm of Paramount that had bought the picture, uh, when they showed it to the main management, they get Steven Spielberg as a movie in development that we start in eight months. It's just, it has some uh, a Venn diagram of a weird cult and stuff like that. So he figured they buried his movie. Anyway, he had an interesting idea that the movie should be the actual broadcast, which would have been some narrative problems oh, because... Wow. You know, how did he get in trouble and, you know, and stuff like that. And he also uh, was making it very, you know, he had a, he was making it very, very British. And he said, you know, on, a, on, a, on an English crew, you have the tea lady who comes around with a cart with, like, tea and biscuits. And his idea was that when the tea lady came through, the show stopped, the crew stopped, the stalker stopped, and the runner stopped, and they all t- took a break and had a snack. <laughs> And then, the, then they started up again. It was sort of like in, in uh, The Man Who Would Be King when the holy men come through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, it, it, was, it was kind of a Monty Python bridge too far. And before you could say, what is the capital of Assyria, he was gone. Right? Oh, I got some people that, that got, got, got that reference. Um, so then Andy Davis, who later on did The Fugitive, but at this time had done just this, uh, at this time he, he went off and did uh, a movie with Steven Seagal instead called Above the Law. So he started the movie... Uh, he worked for a week, uh, and he was falling behind schedule. And uh, I got a call from Rob Cohen. He says, listen, I need you to come in. Come to Daly's right now. We have a real problem. And I said, well, I, just picked, I, I, I just picked my daughter up uh, like at, at, at like dance class or gymnastics. I said, all right, bring her. I know her. So I go to the screening room, and Arnold comes from the set, and he's in the, the orange, the yellow outfit. Uh, the director is not there, which is, you know, at Daly's. And now they start running. It's the, it's the ice skating sequence with Sub-Zero. So uh, it's a stunt sequence, so it's just pretty much, you hear the crew talking and, you know, there's no sound effects, there's no dialogue. So the projector's running, it's like the beginning of Citizen Kane, there's smoke, and it's just running and it gets kind of monotonous and there's the smoke curling up. And then I hear a voice saying, ew, that's gross. Mister, can you put out that stinky cigar? And this is my daughter, who's like, here, here now. But, you know, so, so I go, oh, well, okay. And then Arnold, very chivalrously, puts the cigar out. And, and as the chivalry extends, because then she falls asleep on him. <laughs> Right, because, like, you know, it's just the drone of the projector. All right, so uh, anyway, uh, I don't know why I'm here, and then I see what happened. In a meeting earlier when we were developing the picture, uh, Andy said, listen, I have a great idea. At the end of the movie, when they break into the studio, they're cornered, they're trapped, they're all going to get died. They, they overestimated the security guards in the studio, and then Arnold reaches into his pocket, and he takes out one of the exploding hockey pucks, and he throws it, and he kills the guards. And then somebody... You know, Rob and I look at each other, and you know, I leave this, this remark to him. He says that makes Arnold the biggest shit heel, like in movie career, that he had this thing in his pocket for the whole movie while the entire supporting cast is getting killed, and 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 uses it to save his own ass. So he said, "We're not doing that." But then he's behind schedule several days. He shot this. He improvised that scene, and he had Arnold pocket one of the hockey pucks. So that was you know, uh, the, so then Andy was out, and Rob had been a director uh, on uh, Miami Vice. And uh, Michael Mann now is a guest star. Uh, the two guest stars here is uh, when they went to hire a writer for the screenplay, uh, uh, Rob Cohen called up Joel Silver, gave me a high recommendation. I had done 48 Hours and Commando at that time. So now Michael Mann came to the rescue and recommended Paul Michael Glazer, uh, who had done some of the very key uh, seminal episodes of Miami Vice, like Smuggler's Blues and uh, The Return of Calderon, some of the ones that really like, mm-hmm. d- built the show in the first 13 episodes. And he had had a whole career as an actor and then a director in television. And now we're behind schedule after four directors coming and going. And the picture has a hard release date. He was able to hit the ground running. And, 
and, and make the movie and finish the movie. How is it for you, uh, as the creator of the, the whole blueprint for this film... Well, no, there's a novel. Again, there's a novel. It's well, well right. Give it, yeah. but, it, it, but it's it varies it's quite differently. Lot, yes, I mean, the yeah. ending of that is completely different and bleak, too. He flies a plane... Yeah, yeah, like, you know, we didn't want to kill Arnold, but the end of the movie is Arnold hijacks an airplane... Not Arnold, uh, Ben Richards hijacks a plane... That's fair and to crashes call him into the network too. tower. Yeah. So that's one more, you know, we're spared that And one. his daughter and his wife are murdered. Yeah, yeah. they're both, yeah. They, he's on the show and they say, listen, you know, we didn't want to tell you, but your wife and daughter were murdered. We yeah. didn't do it. It was a real crime. So, but, and, they, and they make him the same offer, you could be a stalker. Uh, but the, yeah, a hunter. But again, the hunters on the show are kind of anonymous. But it's fair to say that you really put your stamp on this. And then when four to five other directors come in, how does it feel when they take it in these vastly different directions? Do you feel like, ah, oh, this is my job, I'll just go with them? Or do you, do you fight them on well, no, things? Well, no, again, this was kind of a, uh, a studio... Uh, this was more in an era when uh, studio executives would have a, a, a heavier hand. Okay. And, uh, again, Rob had a lot of uh, street cred uh, with uh, directors. Uh, he had been, like, a studio executive. He had been a television director... So uh, when he gives you a note, you know what I mean, he's going to get more respect than maybe, you know, someone who comes out with, a, you, know, a, you know, a business degree. Uh, so, uh, in, in fact, you know, at one point he would say to me, listen, I don't think this guy, Fairfax, is going to work out, but you're going to have to endure his notes and try and do his notes uh, until we see where this goes. So I, you know, knew I, I had my time in the barrel, and I was bending in each direction, like, for example, the, the version for uh, George Cosmanos was much darker, it had concentration camps. And he wanted, and I was fighting it, uh, he wanted uh, the girl to be, uh, in, in the picture, to be uh, a, uh, a uh, revolutionary. And uh, she talked Arnold into uh, be kind of joining the revolution, sort of like the, uh, his cohorts here do. And so when George left, I said, listen, I did that because George wanted to do it. It makes no sense. She should be one of the 1%. She should be 180 degrees away from her. She should be a network tool. Then there's somewhere for them to both go. So, you know, you sort of, you know, it, it's like you sort of bend, you know, you know what is it, the, the willow tree bends and the oak tree. So I bend with it. But what was, what was unusual in, in it uh, that Rob, who I subsequently really did, I've done three pictures for him, uh, he was saying, listen, you just got to put up with this now. But I think at the end we're going to protect, you know, the, the design we have for this movie. Huh. So ultimately, you know, I, I came out with with uh, uh, what the intention was finally at the end. And by the time, by the time um, uh, Paul Glazer came in, there was no notes. He said, "Look, this is the script. You know, like you, you know, we're starting in one week, and there's there's no time for any notes at all." Right. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, uh, so uh, uh, I would say that except for this sequence at the end, which really bothers me to this day, I'm not sure. You know, I could tell you, you know, my dying words, the fucking last reel, that studio executive. Uh, but other than that, I'm, 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 I'm pretty pleased with it. Well, let's talk a bit about Die Hard. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly Thank you. Thank not you. alone. It, it's just revered as a perfect film. It's, it's amazing to me. This also, at one point, was at least a potential vehicle for Schwarzenegger as well, right? Yes. They, Even they, a sequel to Commando. They, uh, the script was... No, that's, that, that that's is, not no, true? No, there's an urban myth that I keep shooting down, which Whoa. is that Die Hard was the Commando 2 sequel, which was never shot. Still Are you on, saying I can't trust IMDb no, no, trivia? No, it, no. It, 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 it's still on the shelf. The, the Commando 2 script had one idea, which uh, 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 was that after the events of the first movie... Uh, that Ar Arnold would have a 15 minutes of fame for blowing up half of Los Angeles. So in the sequel, 
uh, he, he'd already, he left the army in the first picture, he started a security firm. And he gets hired by a big industrialist who says, listen, this crazy world we live in, you know, executives get kidnapped, there's crime, our people are around the world, I want you to hire my security people so I have the best people to protect my executives around the world. And I want you to make my office building an impregnable fortress so it's secure. Uh, and Arnold does that, but it turns out that the guy is actually an international arms dealer, right? And then when a shipment goes wrong, Arnold is framed for it. And the guy takes cover in his building with, uh, with uh, Raygon Chong from the first movie and Arnold's daughter now. So Arnold has to break into the building that he made impregnable and <laughs> defeat all the people, plus the, the most vicious, like, you know, dogs, plus robot security droids. So... <laughs> If there was, so I, somehow the idea of Arnold trying to get into a building got conflated in people's minds with, you know, the hero of Die Hard trying to get out of a building. Interesting. But Die Hard is based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever, which Larry Gordon at Fox immediately changed because there was a chick flick with the same title written by Sidney Sheldon <laughs> some years earlier. But a good bet, a good bar bet is you're in a bar and you say, you know that character that Bruce Willis played in Die Hard 2, 3, 4... Who was the first person to play that part in Frank what Sinatra. movie? That's the answer, Frank Sinatra. Then grab your money before they beat you up. <laughs> because, because Nothing Lasts Forever is the sequel to a book called The Detective, which Frank Sinatra made a movie of. And if you see that movie in a rerun, you see a detective who's estranged from his wife. They're having mar uh, marital dif dif difficulties. So C Fox was legally obligated to go back to Sinatra. And fortunately, he said, I'm too old and too rich to make this movie, which is good because the chases in the building would have been, would have been with rascal scooters. <laughs> so once, once he said no, we changed the name of the character from uh, uh, John Leyland to uh, John McClane to sever the legal obligations to uh, Sinatra's, Sinatra's company. Now, there, is an, there was an earlier draft, which, uh, which Jeb Stewart did, which uh, hove very closely to the book, um, uh, it, it had one. It had it had two really important, it, several important changes that Jeb did. Uh, one was the character is no longer like my age now. He's not a retired cop. He's a younger cop, and the hostage in the building is his wife, not his daughter, because in the continuity of the books, the breakup was in the movie The Detective, uh -huh. the, the divorce, and they never got back together. And also, she died in the in the in the takeover, and they were real terrorists. You know, when the book was written, the Bader Mankoff gang was going on in Germany. So by the time we made the movie, oh, terrorism, that's, not, that's over, that's not going on. That's a Chuck Norris movie. Um, and uh, in the book, it, you're entirely in the guy's head. You only see what he sees, you only hear what he hears. And a lot of the running time of the book, the chapters is him remembering when the daughter was young, his wartime experiences, he realized that the leader of the German gang was someone that he had captured in World War II, but was strangely released from the prison camp in Germany because he had criminal soldiers. So uh, that took up time. But in the movie, you can't sustain a movie, you know, just in the head of that, uh, of, of that one person. Uh, and when the book was written, the CB craze was going on. Do you remember see, you know, Good Buddy, all those convoy movies? Yeah. So the guy that he communicated with outside was a gypsy taxi driver. So, uh, it, so uh, and there was later on a cop came in. So uh, Jeb very importantly made... Uh, you know, made it the wife, not the daughter, and uh, blended the cop and the, and the gypsy cab driver. Um, I was brought in because I'd already done several movies for this team, and they knew I could add humor and plot twists. And so 
Um, the, the big plot twist was I invented this preposterous lock, right? There's like nine locks you can't get through, and the final lock is an underwater cable that goes to Tokyo. And plays that Beethoven. Only, that you have to turn the power. I mean, people yeah. believe this shit, you know, but I, <laughs> it's sort of like re, re, reverse a, engineered it. And it's also preposterous that the leader of this crime doesn't tell everybody, they're saying, but the police here, he says, the police for always part of the plan, you know? Like, so it makes no sense, but it makes you root for, and he, it, it makes you root for Hans Gruber because you want to find out what the fuck uh, he's up to. That was his first part. Uh, 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 Joel Silver and John McTiernan uh, went to see Les Liaisons Dangereux, did I say that right? In, he was in, in, in Broadway, and they said, here's our guy. Um, and what's interesting, there's a, an attitude often that uh, directors uh, don't want uh, writers on the set, and this is because some writers don't know how to behave on the set. Like, the star comes over and says, you know, you know why, uh, you know, I, give me something for my character, and like a writer says, I think you're claustrophobic. And then the director goes, what the fuck is he doing? Why is he cringing in the elevator? Did he talk to the writer? But I had, you know, started out as a television writer, and I worked my way up the food chain till I was a showrunner, night writer. Probably some of you had the toys. Yeah. All right. So uh, I know how to talk to actors, and, and when somebody else is director, I don't talk to the actors unless they say go talk to the actors. So, on this, so what happened was the original script was passed on by Arnold, by Stallone, by Richard Gere, uh, by uh, Jimmy Kahn, by Burt Reynolds, who had done a lot of movies. And it was because at this time, and I was partially responsible, and so was you know, Rambo and Commando, you had these superhuman testosterone kind of characters, and this character is like a normal guy. So uh, that version of the script, which did not have the mitigating humor, and also... Had, did not have a plot twist in terms because they were really terrorists and stuff like that. For whatever reason, everybody passed on that. And that, in a famous story out of desperation, they said, all right, let's use, uh, um, let's use Bruce. We have a contract here with him and Fox. And he got the then amazing price of $5 million. The very next day, Richard Dreyfus fired his agent. So I have an Academy Award, and I don't get $5 million. <laughs> so it, it sort of rock, uh, rocked Hollywood. And they, they said to me... Uh, now listen, just as a formality, go, go see him. But uh, if he has any changes, run them by us because we're like behind schedule already because of trying to get a star. And don't t- promise him you're not going to make any changes because he's fed up to here with the pink, blue, green pages from Moonlighting. So I go to meet him for the first time and we discover we grew up like about 35 miles apart. He's like uh, five years younger than me. We both went to the same places in Atlantic City. We talked about playing you know, Army under the boardwalk. And then we start talking about the kids' shows we used to watch on the same Philadelphia stations, including Roy Rogers used to say, yippee-ki-yay, kids. So that's how that came into, into the movie. So finally he says, boy, this is funny. There's so much fun. We should have some fun in this movie. And I go, well, they told me you don't want any changes. No, please. So then I was on the set, and the changes were happening so fast, and the picture is better for it. I'll give you a famous example, two famous examples. One is, one of the things that drove us crazy is the way the movie is set up, uh, is that Bruce really can't get fall in hate with uh, Hans because if they meet, they'll kill them. So it was driving us crazy, and as we're shooting, Joel Silver says, we got to have him fall in hate. we got to have him fall in hate. How do we do it? So one day on the set, when our tea lady comes around uh, for the snacks, someone says to, um, to Alan Rickman, Alan, a lot of the uh, you know, UK actors do an American accent. Do you do an American accent? And he said, well, I don't know if I do an American accent per se, but I do, you know, like a California one. <laughs> so everybody cracks up, and I go, oh, my God, that's it. 
and I go and I grab Joel Silver and I go, listen, listen, listen. And he says, so what? I said, if he, he's just a voice on the radio. He can mind fuck Bruce. He can meet Bruce. And then we, Tom McTiernan comes over and John is a very meticulous planner. He actually went to AFI as a writer, uh, not a director. So he, and he, he goes, uh, no, no, he sees him kill Tagagi. And I said, well, when do you shoot that? And the first day he says, we shoot that tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, can you shoot that in a manner in which he doesn't see him. He says, I'm not going to do the over-the-head fake thing. I said, it's got to be a plausible way. So we go over to the set, and John goes around like, you know, this with the hand, you know. And finally he says, all right, this big table with a giant solid leg, if we move it over there, I can stage it. Great, great. He says, no, not great. You've got to go write the scene. So they throw somebody out of the nearest office to the soundstage, and they give me a typewriter. By this time I'm on a computer, so I'm, oh, carriage return. So I go write this scene in about like three hours and I bring it back and it's okay, it's in the movie and that's how that famous scene where he gets me. But everybody says to me, how does Bruce know he's not a hostage? And people come up to me and go, I know, I know. It's because he offers him one of those foreign cigarettes and he accepts it and no American would accept a foreign cigarette. And somebody says, oh, because the weight of the gun is different with the, with the magazine that's empty, but no, that's before he gives him, the, you know, how does he know? Here's how he knows. Originally, when they get off the truck at the beginning of the movie, they, you know, dan, 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 dan. and by the way, nobody gets killed in this movie for the first 20 minutes. I mean, it's a lot of restraint for a movie nowadays. Right? So the truck pulls in, and the terrorists get off, and they walk towards the camera very dramatically, and they go into the building. Originally, they walked off the truck, and they came out, and the camera craned up, and you saw them in a circle, and Alan Rickman said in German, synchronize your watches. And they all put their arms out in a circle with the camera going down like a Hitchcock shot. And they all went, beep. They all, and they all had the same tag, your watch. Now, if you notice, the first guy that Bruce kills, almost by accident, rolling down the steps, he searches the body, he looks at the, at the IDs, right? He steals the cigarettes, which is a laugh. He goes like this. And then he looks at the watch, which gets another laugh because you're thinking that he might be stealing the watch. But as he kills each guy... He notices they all have the same watch. Now, you remember the scene in the movie, he talks to the cop outside, Dwayne Robinson, and he says, I think these guys are professionals, their IDs are too good, there's no labels in their clothes, and they all have the same watch. That was in the movie. I think he'd just be a bartender. Now, here's what happened, right? As we're making the movie, the one thing we had not figured out was how are they going to get away with it? We have a line of dialogue where he says, well, if they think you're alive, they pursue you, but if they think you're dead, you, could, you, know, you can escape. So we had that line of dialogue, but how are they getting away? So we're down to like, like eight days of filming left on the movie, and we still have to say we got to explain how they were going to get away. You, so, you have not figured this out at this no, point? No, no, no. So finally I, I said... I, I almost don't want to hear that this so, film was so, left to the, down no, to the so wire. So finally I say, listen, I, I'm going to rip myself off. I did a, a TV movie pilot two years ago that aired once, nobody's seen it, it'll never be on home video, called Will Eisner's The Spirit. It was, a, it was before the, 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 the Frank, Frank Miller's Will Eisner's Spirit. And in that, the villain, if you know the comic book, who was, um, uh, what was her name? What? Somebody must know it here. Um, I forget her name. Anyway, she was an arch villain, a very sexy villain. She was so evil, she was going to blow up a children's hospital and escape in a fake ambulance. So I said, let's do that again. Right. And no, nobody saw it. Nobody remembered we did it. Since then, it came out of home video and it's called following. Anyway, 
Uh, so we say, that's it, that's it. And we shoot the scene at the end of the movie where Argyle's in the basement and then he sees the, one of the handful of terrorists who hasn't been killed, roll the ambulance out, and he knocks him out. Now we have the first cut of the movie. We're watching this, a handful of people. There's John McKiernan, studio executives, uh, my wife and I, uh, 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 Joel Silver. We're watching the movie. It's all working, temporary music, a couple of shots missing, dun, dun, dun. and then they get off the truck, and we go, oh, shit. Because while they're standing there saying, synchronize your watches, you see there's no ambulance in the truck. Because we hadn't thought of that when we shot it. So now, John says to the editor, get the scissors in there, cut, at the, cut as soon as you can when they get off the truck so we don't see there's no ambulance. But now, without synchronizing your watches, all of these moments where Bruce looks at each guy's watch makes no sense. So if you see the movie again on cable or Blu-ray, when they get off the truck, look, don't look at them, look in the truck, and you'll see, as for a split second, there's no ambulance. And when Bruce offers uh, the cigar, a cigarette to Alan Rickman, Bruce sees the watch. You see his eyes totally look at the watch. And that's how he knows that he is one of the terrorists. Wow. <laughs> but it, it, it got crazier. Uh, I, I, you know, I would go home, and, I, and, and one of the things that made this a richer movie is Bruce was still shooting Moonlighting during the daytime, and finally John McKiernan came to me and said, listen, we're killing this guy. He's in every scene. He's working the daytime. Why don't you start expanding the other characters in the movie and we can give Bruce some days off? And so that's why the asshole reporter's part got bigger and bigger. And that's why Holly's part got bigger and bigger. And she had all these confrontation scenes with Alan Rickman because every time those scenes are happening with other people, like when he goes out to the housekeeper and says, and again, like this is like the other movie, uh, like Ice. Remember he says housekeeper? Ice. Yeah. Right, right. So um, Bruce, Bruce, you know, gets this a day off. <laughs> so, it, uh, so it, 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 that that made the movie that made me the movie richer. When you guys were making, you're responsible for some of the great Schwarzenegger vehicles and that classic '80s action style. This movie plays against that completely. Were you aware that you were starting something fresh and new with this at the time? Well, or? we realized with we realized with 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 uh, Die Hard that this was a realistic hero that was a, a kind of a new paradigm that was forgotten. In fact, the greatest compliment I got after people saw the movie is they said, Steve, I thought he was going to die. Because, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, Paul Newman or Burt Lancaster could be in a movie and they, Frank Sinatra, uh, Ron Ryan's Express, the hero could win but die. Yeah, the killers you know? with Lancaster. You know, so it happened once in a while. So the fact that, now that since then, he's become a superhero, you know, yeah. in the sequels. In fact, in the first sequel, in order to try and get that vulnerability in there, that's why I crashed the plane. Because we knew we'd live. Because of the first movie, but I had to have to have a big colossal failure. So that's why I invented his desperate attempt to like signal the plane and Did not land it. Did you have any pushback on that from studios? Or? Oh yeah, in fact, the studio insisted. They said, you can't kill all those people, we'll lose the audience. It has to be a UPS plane. <laughs> so they, 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 they actually spent money and they filmed a UPS model plane crashing as a fallback position in case the audience left the theater when we crashed the plane after we put the seatbelt on the little girl's teddy bear. <laughs> yeah, they're worried about their packages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just like say, well, only two people died and a lot of packages, you know. <laughs> so fortunately, you know, the audience loved the movie at the, at, at, at the test screening, and we kept in the, the, the plane full of people. For a while, if you didn't count George Lucas blowing up uh, 
uh, Princess Leia's planet, that was the highest body count movie because of the model airplane we crashed with the imaginary, uh, imaginary people in it. Anyway, uh, the second picture was based on a novel, nothing to do with the first series of novels, called uh, 58, 56, minutes. 58 Minutes, yeah. which was about um, Arab terrorists who took over an airplane. Uh, and it was all different characters. And the studio said, it was the Monday after Die Hard opened, they said, we're making a sequel. And uh, they said, uh, we have a script that's lying around, we think is it. And I was, that script had already been written, but it was based on the novel. And I plugged, put in all the characters from the first movie. Reginald L. Johnson was on a TV series. We couldn't get him. And again, the same idea that I... And again, maybe this contributed to the legend on IMDb. The idea I had for Commando 2, that the experiences of the first picture made you notorious, we played a lot in the second movie. People said, I remember you were on TV. You know, because Bruce Will- because yeah. the, the first movie was on television. You know, television is covering the hostage situation in Century City. So we played that in the second movie that Bruce had had a moment of celebrity and did not like it. And I mean, the villain says, I, I think you were over your head on... Uh, night, on, uh, on um, Charlie Rose, he said. There's a line of dialogue. (laughs) And uh, one of the things that was in the first two movies, which was then lost, he was a vulnerable guy, and he was also a technophobe. You may remember uh, that he had a lot of, you know, he hated technology, and he hated flying, and all that stuff. Now he's flying airplanes, you know, uh, in the latter movies. But uh, I I think, you know, he's gotten to be be superhuman, and he's flying helicopters, and, and, and he's in Russia, and shooting airplanes, jumping out of buildings. Uh, the, the, the fact that we're onto something really good, it was proven. Uh, I used to, when I make my earlier movie, 48 Hours in Commando, uh, right after we'd wrap a movie, we'd make the uh, airline and television version. Like, you know, Yippie Kaye, Melon Farmer, you know, that kind of, <laughs> right? So I would bring home the videotape of my movies to show to my kids because the movies were too rough for them. So Die Hard was the first picture that, that I took my kids to see in the movie theater because I was protecting them from these R-rated movies. So at the moment where Bruce sees all the terrorists come in, and he realizes he's got to, you know, he's sort of, it's kind of like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, There's a bad term for acting, but he had to do it, like, looks at his gun, and they've got, you know, like, you know, bazookas, and he runs upstairs. And 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 the hero spends the first act, this is why people didn't want to do it, trying to call the police. Uh That's what he does in the first act of the movie. So he runs upstairs, and my son says, Dad, your hero's chicken shit. And I said, you're 10 years old. Where did you hear that word? Not from my movies. <laughs> but uh, that's when I knew it. And the movie holds up. I mean, the only thing that dates that movie is Bonnie Medeo's shoulder pads and hairstyle. <laughs> Other than that, the movie, you know... It, it, well, that's coming yeah, back around, so yeah, you're fine. Yeah. Um, just one or two more things before we got to wrap this up. Now, there is a connection between <coughs> Schwarzenegger and these films. If I'm not mistaken, in Die Hard 2, the General Franco Nero's part is from <coughs> the fictional country of Valverde, which yes, is also yes. the same country as in yes, Commando, I, right? when, I, when I was at uh, when I was doing the uh, Knight Rider and the Bionic show, so that's my first job, so the $6 million Bionic Woman, uh, Harv Bannon later on did all the Star Trek movies. Uh, we were always doing Cold War stories, always had commie villains. So we used to always invent fake countries because if you did a story and you said, uh, you said Steve, you know, like Oscar Goldman, the uh, interior minister of El Salvador is actually a communist agent, like we would get sued. Yeah. So we invented all these fake countries. So I invented Valverde then on an episode of like the Bionic Woman or something. We used it once. My favorite country I made up on the Bionic Woman for an inside joke that like nobody in America got was um, uh, the, um, uh, what the hell is that? Uh, what, what's the lake over in North Hollywood? Um, what? Yeah, Toluca. There was an apartment building called the Toluca Embassy. So I made up a country called Toluca so we could show 
Lindsay Wagner go into the Toluca Embassy. But anyway, so anyway, I recycled, I recycled Valverde for Commando. And we said, uh, the president of Valverde trusts you and you can get to him, go kill him. Then, without asking my permission, they used Valverde again in Predator. They said, we're, we're crossing the Guatemalan border into Valverde. So then, when we got into uh, Die Hard 2, we actually have consistent history. If you listen to the newscast, right, of the Valverde, and that was the thinly disguised Panama, you know, the whole thing with, with Noriega. Yeah, yeah. But if you listen to the newscast, it's in the movie, I always do these newscasts, he's talking some of the history of Valverde, you know, from, uh, from the earlier movies. And there's a theory online called the Valverde Movie Universe. And they said that it's even beyond the, the, uh, the Marvel Universe. If you add up all the movies that Valverde is in, right, could all the Predator movies now roll into it, these movies, and also because Gail, because Gail, uh, because Gail, Gail Wallens, the newscaster that's in Die Hard, also is in the movie Ricochet I did with, with Denzel Washington, playing the same character. So that rolls oh my God. Denzel Washington's Ricochet into the Valverde universe. And there's somebody online, there's somebody who created a webpage for this fictional country, it's on Wikipedia, Valverde, and somebody else has this theory, you know, like the theory that like all the Pixar movies are connected? Yeah. Somebody has a chart with graphs and circles of all the movies that are, that oh, are part I'm of the, sure the Valverde verse. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's wrap it up with uh, just a little bit about Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk, okay, all right. I Look at the appreciation that has come, I saw this, yeah. uh, very close to my 18th birthday in the theater. I've always loved this movie. Talk about the reception and the history of this film a little bit, well, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Bruce wanted. Bruce had just a good experience doing the first two Die Hard pictures. He had a deal with with TriStar, which is now, now Sony, to make a movie. And he said, "I want to do a cat burglar movie. I want to do a movie like like To Catch a Thief with Cary Grant." And that was the script I wrote. Anyway, uh, the movie starts. And we're over in Italy making the movie. And one night in the trailer, the phone rings. And it's Mark Canton calling Bruce Willis, saying, we just had a test screening of, um, uh, what, is it, what, is it, what, what was the movie? Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, bon- where Bruce was already, people were controversy, he was playing a sweet street British, but they made him an American. And Mark Canton says, we had a test of the movie, and... You tested through the roof. We are recutting the movie to make your part bigger. So we don't hear the phone call. Bruce gets off and says, it was Mark Anton. They just had a test screening of Bonfire of the Manatees. I tested through the roof. They're recutting the picture. <clears throat> and Joel Silver kicks me and says, fucking Mark Anton just fucked his movie and ours. Watch what happens this week. And so now Bruce decided, as a big fan of the Street Stooges, that the movie should get crazier and crazier and crazier. And he brought in Dan Waters, a great guy, to make it crazier and crazier. Uh, and finally, the studio uh, sends, calls me up and says, we need you. You get along with Bruce. You're both from the old neighborhood. We're sending you and your wife all expenses paid. We, we have no money to pay you, but we're sending you over, putting you up in a, renting a villa for you in Abbey Antica. You've got to take the pencil out of Bruce's hand and put the script back to the one you took. So I go there, and Joel Silver meets me and says, Bruce hired us. It's not our job to tell him he can't make the movie he wanted. He brought us in. It's the studio executives, and the studio executives coming over here tomorrow. So the studio executive comes over the next day, 
and he said, he arrives late at night, and he says, what are we filming tomorrow? It's a robbery sequence. He says, well, there's no dialogue in that scene, so we'll talk the next day. <laughs> and the next day, he says, listen, I'm sorry I couldn't get down to the set. I was on the phone with the studio. I'm going, with the time difference, they're all asleep. So this guy finds three days in a row to avoid belling the cat. Then it's the weekend, and then the following Monday, he says, the emergency have to go back. So nobody tells Bruce to stop rewriting the movie and also directing the movie. So the movie you know, becomes the movie that Bruce wanted to make. Uh, and so the whole thing that they rob according to the songs, these are all the things that he wanted to do. And it all, in my opinion, it all could have worked. There was one mistake that makes it not work. I know people like it today, but even in a Disney movie, the villain is serious. If you look at Aladdin, you can have the crazy parrot, the, the Jafar, the one to, but Jafar is deadly serious. Soon all Arabia will be under my sway. If only I married Princess Jafar. Right? But in this movie, the villains were stupid and silly. The underling, and that was, the, that was a bridge too far, in my opinion. If, if the villain had, and listen, and talk about going with the vicissitudes, the first draft of that movie, the villain was going to be uh, Josh, uh, what's his name, from um, Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, jo- Josh Ackland was the original villain of that movie, and, and they wanted to get him, and then uh, Michael Lehman said, I have a better idea, let's get Audrey Hepburn to be a female villain. So the first draft where it was more straight, like, like it was, there was comedy relief. I mean, you see my movies, there's comedy relief. But the first draft of the movie, it was Joss Ackland was the villain. It was the same plot. He wanted to get the Da Vinci thing uh, and, and, and the Da Vinci secret gold machine. Uh, and uh, then the second draft, you made it Audrey Hepburn. And then by the time it got Was crazy, she on board for this? No, they, they already had a conversation with her. But by the time it morphed into, that it finally changed where, where Bruce said, hey, let's take the guy from the first movie and the girl from the second movie and make them a couple. And when the movie, we put the movie together, it became so kind of incomprehensible that the big reveal that they wanted this machine to make gold, they stay in the opening credits. You know, Leonardo then she invented, the, you know, it's like, it was a desperate attempt to have the movie pull together because it was almost improvised. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I know it has a cult following today and there's some great stuff in it. And it's a wonderful stuff, but they telegraph, they telegraph the, it, when the movie got everything written, you did not know till late in the movie what the hell the Da Vinci robberies were about. Did not know where it was going to make the gold machine. And the escape on the, the original Da Vinci glider was an 11th hour, like, save. It wasn't te- so the opening of this movie, they telegraphed the glider <laughs> and they telegraphed the gold machine, so there's, no, there's nowhere to go. Huh. Well, I hate it now. All right, all right. No, no, no. Like I said, there's a lot of great stuff in it, but like I think it would. I think if just the villains had been played straight, you know, uh, it, it would have been better. Anyway, well, thank God for James Coburn in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was look. I was great. We had a great time in Italy. That was, I'll say that. <laughs> great food and great company. But it was just frustrating every day to see the the movie. You know, getting you know. Uh, uh, Getting sort of, I think, getting off the rails to a, uh, to a great degree. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Stephen D'Souza. Thank you all. Thank you so much, Stephen. That was really yeah. wonderful. Thank you guys. Thanks to Brett Berg and Alamo Draft House and the Regent Theater. Have a good night. Drive safely, everybody. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.